Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. I'm glad you could join me today, and I'm very happy to welcome Carrie McDonald back to the program. Carrie is a senior education fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education, also an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, and the author of a great book, which you should read, called Unschooled, Raising Curious, Well-Educated Children Outside the Conventional Classroom. Carrie, so good to reconnect with you. It's great to be back with you, Brian. Thanks for having me. Well, I don't suppose you've heard anything about this uh, coronavirus that's going around. <laughs> you know, what What uh, a wild time we're all living in right now. I think um, a lot of us are just wondering, uh, you know, how this is all going to play out, how it's impacting our families. I think everybody seems to be um, affected in one way or another at this point. And it's, I, I was telling you before we began, I have a hard time myself reconciling, okay, all the times that there have been these alerts and, and it kind of, I have this curiosity of, is this the little boy crying wolf or is there actually a wolf out there on the prowl? So I, I'm, I'm still trying to make sense of it. This much I, I do know, though, there is an opportunity that comes along with a crisis like this, and that is people, uh, people switch off of autopilot and actually start to pay attention. And you have zeroed in on something that uh, may actually be a very positive aspect of this. Uh, that is, as, as public gatherings in particular schools and so forth are shutting down, this is opening some parents' eyes to alternatives that they may not have considered otherwise. That's right. So right now, over 300 million uh, children around the world are not going to school because of uh, coronavirus quarantines. And it's really remarkable. They, we, we see in, in about 13 countries, there are countrywide school closures, including Japan and Italy and, of course, China, um, Hong Kong. And then in a dozen other countries, including the U.S., there are sort of these sporadic school closings in areas where there is a key outbreak. So it's affecting hundreds of millions of young people who are now suddenly uh, finding themselves homeschooled, right? And their parents are uh, either also have had work shut down and are in, under quarantine too, or have to be home with their children. And of course, you know, this is one of these sort of sudden shocks and certainly causes hardship for many families and, of course, illness in this case for, for some. Um, so we don't you know, want to lighten that impact that it's having on, um, on families. But on the other hand, I think it's a really um, incredible moment. And I wrote an article this morning for, for, in my Forbes column uh, called The World's Homeschooling Moment, because uh, regardless of the circumstances, the reality is that we now have these 300 million students who are being homeschooled, essentially, by default. Um, and so I think that's an opportunity to really think about what this could mean. Now, most of these families, of course, will um, ultimately send their children back to school once the quarantines are over. But, you know, you wonder if this is a moment for families to start to think about this, the reality that you can be educated 
without being schooled. And I think that's really the point that I wanted to make in the Forbes article and in um, some of my fee articles recently, that, you know, the United Nations uh, is sounding this alarm like this is, you know, a calamity. They they wrote last week um, that, and I'll just quote from the United Nations, they said, the global scale and speed of current educational disruption is unparalleled, and if prolonged, could threaten the right to education. And of course, as you know, Brian, I'm always talking about separating education from schooling. And I think this is a moment to really uh, focus on that. Well, and and one of the great advantages we have here, it's not like suddenly we have to invent the wheel from nothing. Uh, There have been alternatives all along. In fact, some of them are extremely well-developed. But people just haven't considered them for for one reason or another. Um, Talk about some of the the different alternatives to standard schooling that most people would think of that have, have been around for some time. Well, of course, homeschooling um, is growing increasingly popular. I mean, here in the U.S., we have um, over 2 million homeschoolers currently. And homeschooling, the population of homeschooling in the U.S. and worldwide is becoming much more demographically diverse. Here in the U.S., it's much more reflective of the larger American society. Um, Urban secular homeschooling is one of the fastest growing areas of homeschooling with families opting out of this increasingly standardized, test-driven, one-size fits all uh, mass schooling environment. And so there there's that option. And then even within that or underneath that homeschooling umbrella, homeschooling is really becoming the legal lever that enables freedom and flexibility for families. There's a lot of regulatory flexibility for families to reassume um, direction of their child's education under the homeschooling structure. And so some of these alternatives to school include things like learning centers or hybrid homeschooling programs that enable, in many cases, parents both to work or single parents to take advantage of homeschooling because their children are um, attending a, a learning center part-time or full-time. Um, but again, as registered homeschoolers, or there's these classes in, in organizations around the country that enable homeschoolers to participate during the day. And so families are really able to put together um, an education for their child and for their family um, in ways that wouldn't have been possible, for example, even a decade or two ago. And so I think we're seeing a lot of those changes. And then, of course, online learning, um, you know, has impacted all of us. I mean, I, I certainly I'm sure you and I learn so much now through our access to digital tools. And that is the same for young people. There's incredible um resources and online digital tools for for young people. Now, one of the things we're finding with many of these 300 million students around the world that are under quarantine at the moment is they are replicating essentially school at home. So in many cases, they are just doing their existing schoolwork from their school or with their teachers in their homes. So it's not what we would imagine as sort of the possibility and potential of homeschooling, which really enables families to break free from that um, structure and, and, and systematic approach to education and be much more flexible. But the point is that they are doing something a little bit different and really, again, separating this idea of education from schooling as much as possible. Something you point out in your Forbes magazine article is that uh, we need an education model for the innovation era, not the industrial age. And, And because this happens slowly, I think a lot of us forget sometimes 
that, uh, yes, we live in an industrial age, but the industrial age has been yielding to the information age for a long, long time, for most of our lifetimes, actually. But it comes so slowly that, you know, we, we don't tend to see the shock that, uh, that, you know, we would if it all happened at the same time. Right. And, and so, again, it's another opportunity now to shine a spotlight on our compulsory mass schooling system that was created and replicated in the mid-19th century, coinciding, of course, with the rise of the industrial age. And so we have this essentially factory model of schooling imported from Prussia, um, age-segregated classrooms, state-certified t- teachers, uh, a standardized curriculum, a focus on order and obedience and compliance and conformity. And that continues today, um, and some could argue even more so in the advent of more standardized testing in schools than ever before over the past two decades. And so um, so I think what we really want to do is try to think about a different kind of education system that's more fitting for the innovation era that we're in, this information age where we are so much more technology-enabled and it's much more of a global networked world. And so we have this system of education that's training people to be obedient and conforming. Um, And yet what we need really as we continue to coexist and in some cases compete with robots is to accentuate those essential human qualities of originality and creativity and inventiveness and entrepreneurial spirit that separate us from robots. Um, and, And yet our education system is doing the exact opposite of that. And so I think, again, this is another moment to say, let's break free from this industrial model of mass schooling and think about other ways to learn outside of the schooling environment. Well, you know, nobody likes to be in a state of crisis. I I get that nervous hitch in my stomach as much as anybody else. But I'm grateful for moments like this when we're jarred out of our our current uh, tunnel vision and we can start looking at some of the alternatives. Obviously, I hope the epidemic ends quickly or the pandemic, as it may be, and and that there's minimal loss of life and disruption. But at the same time, as you point out in your, your Forbes article, this may be a good thing in the sense that parents might find there's actually a way for our kids to learn outside of that school setting. And hopefully it's something they'll find not only, you know, is available, but actually very palatable. Okay, hang with me for just a moment here, Carrie. We're going to break here in just a few moments. If you're just joining us, my guest is Carrie McDonald. She is a senior education fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education, also an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, and the author of a remarkable book that should be on your bookshelf, or better still, in your hands, called Unschooling, Raising Curious, Well-Educated Children Outside the Conventional Classroom. This is Loving Liberty. We've got to pay a couple of bills, so we'll take a quick commercial break. We'll come back and we'll continue our conversation with Carrie McDonald about her excellent article in Forbes magazine, which, by the way, you will find in the show notes when we post this one for podcast.
Hey, once again, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. My special guest today is Carrie McDonald. We are talking about the world's homeschooling moment, something which has arisen out of the coronavirus crisis, which, of course, is shutting down a lot of public gatherings. Numerous schools and even companies are saying, hey, employees, if you can telecommute, you know, don't come into work. They're trying to keep people from getting together and spreading the virus. And as Carrie has pointed out, in some ways, there is a silver lining to this. And, Carrie, it, it's it's not only making uh, different educational options available to people, but uh, sometimes crisis opens the door to uh, to new ways of approaching things they wouldn't have considered otherwise. Well, and I'll also say that I mentioned this in the Forbes article, and I think it's important to mention here, too, that back when Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans in 2005 and decimated the city and destroyed the public schools, it was a moment when all of these uh, norms and power structures faded. And it was this incredible, unprecedented uh, moment for education leaders to come in and create what is now an almost entirely all charter school city um, because they were free of those power structures. Um, Terry Moe, who is a professor at Stanford University, wrote an incredible book about this called The Politics of Institutional Reform, all about how Katrina Uh, reshaped education in New Orleans and led to something that really couldn't have happened without that kind of um, shock to the city. And I think that, that again, we're in this moment where with coronavirus, um, we could be in that sort of similar experience of where does it go? Now, I think it could go one of two ways. I think we could either be or one of three ways, right? Nothing could change. We could all go back to our our normal lives. Um, Another thing is that that education could become more decentralized, which is what I'm sort of hoping for, that families are able to kind of reassume responsibility for their children's education and recognize that there are other ways to learn outside of schooling and that homeschooling is much more versatile than they may think. Um, But I think the other third possibility is that education could actually become more centralized. And we're seeing this. I mean, obviously, China has a very centralized education system anyway. Um, They are uh, many of the kids are sort of learning through video right now in China with these centralized teachers teaching everybody the curriculum. And I was listening to a podcast recently with some education leaders uh, in some ways praising that. And I worry (laughs) that it could be a moment in the U.S. where, you know, we could move to more centralization as a result of this, which would be certainly a worry uh, overall, because the more decentralized education is, even in in the school system and more of the local level, the better. Carrie, where can people access your writings? Yeah, so feel free to go visit me uh, at FEE. I'm at FEE.org, F-E-E.org slash Carrie, K-E-R-R-Y. You can see all my links to my FEE articles there and also connect with me at Forbes and elsewhere. Okay, Carrie McDonald, thank you so much. So good to connect with you again. And uh, I will be uh, keeping an eye on on more of your, your thoughts here on the educational opportunities ahead of us. Great to be with you, Brian. Thanks. Once again, that was Carrie McDonald. I am so happy to have had her on the show today. And, and I want to shift gears here at this point. Um, one of the things that I, I have found is, is one of my most solemn duties as a parent is to try to raise children who are thinking, functioning people, not sheeple. 
let me explain, okay, because it's going to sound like, well, you're being kind of condescending. But um, as Carrie pointed out earlier, um, so much of the public schooling system is about teaching people compliance, teaching them conformity, teaching them to know their place, and, and above all, teaching them to turn to someone in authority whenever something needs to be done. Need to go to the bathroom? Well, raise your hand before you do anything. And, and what's crazy is you see this even in adults who have long been out of school you know, if they're in a meeting or something and, and someone needs to, to use the restroom, it's not uncommon to see adults who will raise their hand and wait for someone to give them permission. Excuse me, may I uh, go use the bathroom? Not everybody, but but enough that you realize this has been very deeply conditioned into us. And I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to brag a little bit here, but one of my proudest moments as a parent is when I see my kids questioning authority. And I don't mean in a defiant, rebellious, I'm going to upend everything that is good and holy kind of way. But in a way that that shows they're not just a puppet. They're not just a little automaton who is, is waiting for a bell to ring to signal it's now time to stand up and walk 30 paces that direction. I want my kids to be able to question whether someone telling them to do something, um, first of all, has the legitimacy to tell them to do so. Or if, if they should should perhaps uh, say, you know, tell me again why why I need to do this. Well, here's some good news for you. There are there's a list here of 16 books, children's books you didn't know were anti-authoritarian. This was published a couple of years ago. Actually, I guess not a couple of years ago. Last year, this was published on the Foundation for Economic Education's website, fee.org, by Bertine Schaefer. And I wanted to run through this list really quick just to see if any of these books are on your shelf. And if they're not, maybe you should consider having them. Bertine Schaefer says kids solving problems and getting out of predicaments on their own without the help of adults indeed often with their hindrance, is a very common theme in children's literature. But some books go even farther and dive right into outright anti-authoritarianism. And Bertine Schaefer says, good for them. If you're going to impart moral lessons in children's literature, not always a good idea. Why not impart the ones that are most sorely neglected in the real world? So here are 16 books that stand out as far as helping teach kids anti-authoritarian attitudes. Number one, Snow Treasure. The kids are the heroes in this thrilling World War II story based on real events. By the way, I read this one as a kid, and I remember. It's a great book. Nazi troops have occupied a small Norwegian village. The townspeople fear that the the Nazis will steal all of their savings, $9 million worth of gold. But they have no way of getting it to safety, except for a bunch of kids on sleds. It's an action-packed look at finding creative ways to work around official control and theft. And again, this one was based on real events. Second, the toothpaste millionaire. Young entrepreneurs figure out how to make a better, cheaper toothpaste and become wildly successful. But they also learn about corporate malfeasance when one of the big players doesn't like the competition. Fun for the whole family, unless you're a corrupt toothpaste dynasty family. Again, here's another childhood favorite. Number three, Pippi Longstocking. Beloved Pippi is a nine-year-old girl with extraordinary strength and no parents, which is, of course, very nice because there was no one to tell her to go to bed just when she was having the most fun. That's from the book, by the way. When the police come to take Pippi away to a children's home, she tells them she already has one, plays tag with them, traps them on her roof, and sends them away with cookies. <laughs> How about this one? Charlotte's Web. This is number four. Just because something is in print doesn't mean it's true. And controlling what people believe is one of the greatest tools of every authoritarian. Even a little spider knows that. Next, number five, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. Hogwarts School of Magic and Wizardry has come under the control of the Ministry of Magic, and the students are prohibited from learning the magical skills they will need to defend themselves against evil. 
So Harry Potter and his friends decide to take matters into their own hands, forming a secret group and teaching each other the skills they need. This volume contains one of the best ever depictions of a petty, vindictive, authoritarian personality in the deliciously detestable Dolores Umbridge. This one may cause a little bit of controversy, but uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder's classic Little Town on the Prairie. This is number six on the list. This one chronicles the early years of a settlement becoming a town. Here you see the townspeople solve problems and resolve disputes on their own and narrowly escape having their burgeoning literary society bogged down by politics and bureaucracy. The book is a testament to what people can accomplish when unencumbered by, quote, organization. Number seven on the list, Three Lads and the Lizard King. Can an economist write children's fiction? That's a question that's dogged literary critics for ages, and economist Robert P. Murphy puts it to rest here with his tale of three boys who enter a magical world to fulfill a prophecy and to destroy the evil Lizard King. Now, the boys choose their powers... No prizes for guessing what happens when one chooses the power to create money just by wishing for it (laughs) and set off on an adventure filled with danger, friendship, a few lessons in economics and a unique insight into the desire to rule others as well as its cure. Number eight is Yertle the Turtle. I am the ruler of all that I see, proclaims King Yertle the Turtle before convincing all the other turtles to form an enormous tower so he can stand on them and see more and more things. When the bottommost turtle complains... He barks back, I'm the king, and you're only a turtle named Mac. Well, finally, Mac has had enough and bumps Yertle off the tower and into the mud. An inspiring story that only applies to turtles. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back with more right after these messages. All right, we are back. This is Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde at your service, sharing a very important article from the Foundation for Economic Education. This is uh, from Bratine Schaefer, 16 children's books you didn't know were anti-authoritarian. Now, look, I know some people may be raising their eyebrows saying, Brian, what exactly are you trying to do? You're trying to raise a generation of rebels, nonconformists, troublemakers, scallywags, rascals. You get the picture. No. Um, But what I am trying to do, and something that makes me very proud as a parent, is when my children show that they have picked up the capacity to question things for themselves and not just rely on somebody's word. Well, you know, somebody in authority said this, so uh, therefore it must be true and you must obey it without question. I know that there's a need for people to follow rules, but you know what what society really doesn't need is a bunch of mindless rule followers. And the reason for that is uh, the places where people have been most determined to show that I am the best heel clicker of all are the places where the greatest injustices and the greatest uh, atrocities against humanity have taken place. You know how many people Hitler killed? One. Now, thankfully, he did kill the right person himself. But how many people's deaths was he responsible for? Millions. Likewise with Stalin. Likewise with Chairman Mao. Each of them killed very few people by their own hands, but it was the people who obeyed them without questioning that, that took the lives of millions, tens of millions of people. I know it's an extreme example, but that's the direction it's taking us when people become mindless obeyers of whomever is in authority. Better to ask some questions than just mindlessly say yes, sir, and go after it. 
Number nine on the list is the Butter Battle Book. It's an arms race between the Butterside Uppers and the Butterside Downers, which is the stage for exploring the absurd reasons for hating others that ordinary people are given by those hungry for war. How about this one, number 10? You'll recognize Horton Hears a Who. One of the most disturbing children's books you'll ever read, maybe because it hits a little too close to home these days, when a few ill-intentioned people can convince mobs of monkeys and even baby kangaroos to go after those who don't see the world the way everyone else does. Fortunately, Horton knows what he knows and doesn't give up on his tiny friends. Number 11, The Drinking Gourd. What do you do with evil laws that turn people into property? You break them. That's what young Tommy learns in this fictionalized account of a boy and his father defying the fugitive slave law in order to help a family of escaped slaves find freedom. Number 12 on the list, Huckleberry Finn. Yeah, Huck's soul-searching about the evils of slavery and the distinction between what is legal and what is right is one of the most important passages in all of children's literature. It's a conversation all children should have with themselves at some point. And be sure to read the uncensored version Because a history tidied up is a history forgotten. So yes, you're going to encounter the N-word. So be it. It was a word that was in common usage in that time. Don't try to water it down for the sake of, you know, virtue signaling or wokeness. Number 12. Actually, number 13, rather. The Boy Who Dared. This one is based on a true story. Good citizens don't listen to foreign radio broadcasts. It's illegal in 1941 Germany. But that's what 16-year-old Helmuth Hubner does. And he learns something interesting. His government has been lying to the German people. Helmuth tries to spread the truth by printing leaflets, but he's discovered, charged with treason, and ultimately beheaded. It's a true story that raises important questions about what it means to be a good citizen, the morality of being law-abiding, and the risks that can sometimes accompany exposing the truth. Number 14, The Wizard of Oz. Yes, that Wizard of Oz. Lost in a strange land with no idea how to get back home, a young girl and her friends put all their hope in the wizard, the ruler of Oz, who can make their dreams come true. After risking life and limb to please him, they learn that he's no better equipped to fix their lives than they are, but he does have some shiny trinkets to hand out. Best possible lesson anyone could ever learn, and the earlier, the better. Number 15, The Hunger Games Trilogy. The state pitting its victims against each other to keep the focus off of itself. And the violent revolutionaries becoming the new state. What more needs to be said? By the way, this if you want to talk about a book that is written for our time, or a series of books, that Hunger Games trilogy is actually one of the best that you're going to see. And if you want to try something really interesting, I would recommend find theburningplatform.com and the writings of Jim Quinn in which he lays the uh, the plot of the Hunger Games up against the fourth turning paradigm as uh, as taught by historians Strauss and Howe of the historical cycles and turnings that play out. It has much more relevance to our time uh, right down to the various archetypes that, that are portrayed in the Hunger Games. More than once, friends of mine who have read this series or watched the, the movies of it have turned to me and said, we live in Panem. I won't spoil it for you. You need to check out the series for yourself. Number 16 on the list, and this one surprised me, Winnie the Pooh. Pure anarchy. A bunch of wild animals of varying species all living out in the woods with no one to rule over them. Oh, and all of them getting along just fine. 
Sure, they'll sometimes take an especially difficult problem to Christopher Robin, but he's more of of a trusted advisor than an authority figure. And sure, Rabbit will try to impose needless rules or restrictions from time to time, but it generally ends with everyone deciding to go celebrate something with a picnic and cake in the woods. Again, this is from Bertine Schaefer, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education. I'll have a link to this in the show notes and would strongly encourage you to take a look at it and see what you think. I think it's uh, it's one of the best lists of books that to even, even if your kids don't read them or your kids are grown up, you should read them. Stories are such a powerful way to communicate truth. And I do believe that uh, whoever said storytellers rule the world wasn't exaggerating. It's a great way to help people see what they might not otherwise see. All right. Shifting gears here again for a moment. Did you catch Joe Biden's little outburst? I think this was yesterday. And he was meeting with a group of union workers in Michigan. And a construction worker asked him about the Second Amendment. Now, I've watched a couple different video clips of this. I wanted to play the audio for you. Um, I'm sorry, but former Vice President Biden uses some pretty gutter language here. It's I could edit it, but uh, it's just just understand. He, he uses some really bad language. The man told Biden, you are actively trying to end our Second Amendment rights and take away our guns. This was as the candidate greeted workers building a Fiat Chrysler assembly plant. Biden responded, you're full of shh. You get the picture. A Biden aide tried to end the discussion, but the candidate silenced her, saying, I support the Second Amendment from the very beginning. I have a shotgun. I have a 20 gauge, a 12 gauge. My son's hunt. Then the two men argued about whether Biden had said he would try to take away Americans' guns. The worker said, this is not okay." All right. To which Biden responded, don't tell me that, pal, or I'm going to go out and slap you in the face. The worker responded, you're working for me, man. Biden shot back. I'm not working for you. Don't be such a horse's ass. One of these individuals wants to be your president. The other one uh, apparently was a graduate from Dale Carnegie. Well, I'm just kidding. Um, Dale Carnegie would be quite concerned with uh, with Biden's response. Now, reading this article from National Review, this is from uh, Charles C.W. Cook. He says Biden's response or Biden's uh, behavior would alarm him if he were a Democrat. He says the behavior is extraordinary, especially given that he's previewing his return to normalcy theme that he intends to run on in November. You might think telling a voter that he is full of you know what and that you will slap them matters less than it would usually, given that Donald Trump is in the White House. But arguably, he says the opposite is true. Elections are about contrasts. If he is as belligerent and ill-disciplined as the incumbent, what is Biden's case for replacing him? And Charles C.W. Cook says in this instance, the answer seems to be that unlike Trump, Biden will usher in stricter gun control. But he says that, too, should alarm Democrats. If Biden now has a reputation as a champion of gun confiscation and if construction workers in Michigan are asking him about it, it suggests he does and it suggests he does he's going to have a hard time winning back the voters that trump peeled away from the obama coalition see barack obama didn't say a lot about guns until his second term had started and once he did he then got to preside over the loss of the senate the loss of the white house and a record-breaking period of civilian firearm sales so judging by their rhetoric democrats seem to believe that the center of gravity has changed on this question since But Mr. Cook says the evidence for this is scant. The state of Virginia, for instance, is run solely by Democrats, Democrats who were bankrolled by Michael Bloomberg and who promised to pass restrictive gun control as their first priority. 
Well, they failed, and they sparked a massive backlash in the process. He asks, do we think the playing field looks different in Michigan? He says Democrats should also be worried, whatever the chorus of blue check journalists who are thrilled to think that what the exchange might think, Biden was flatly wrong on the details here. He took offense at the idea that he was in favor of confiscation. Don't tell me that, pal, he said. But what other conclusion are voters to draw from Biden's having said that he would put Beto, hell yes, we're coming for your AR-15, O'Rourke, in, fa- in charge of his gun policy? See, O'Rourke is now primarily famous for having taken the most extreme gun position any presidential candidate has taken in three decades, and Biden just willingly tied himself to him. Can he really be surprised that voters could put two and two together? We've got to take a quick break. This is Loving Liberty. We'll be back right after these messages. Hey, once again, welcome back to Loving Liberty. We'll open up the phone lines in the next hour. Um, so, all right, I, I, I don't want to spend so much time on coronavirus, but guess what? It is, it is one of the things that's going on right now. It's pretty much in everybody's consciousness, and there are some pretty serious questions to be asked. One of the things that, one of the things I struggle with is for all the different times that we've been told this crisis versus that crisis, I have a really overdeveloped sense of skepticism because. Uh, Frankly, there have been too many times that someone in authority has cried wolf. And so I, you know, I'm not sure how seriously to take it. Um, When I see people who aren't government specialists or bureaucrats saying, here's the concern that they have about, you know, overwhelming medical resources and so forth. I tend to give them a little bit more gravity because really they don't have anything to gain by it. But I have a tremendous amount of skepticism for those who say we just need more power. We just need some kind of an enabling act to give us the power to solve this problem. And, and that seems to me like opportunism writ large. So when I saw John Whitehead's article from the Rutherford Institute, this is a test. How will the Constitution fare during a nationwide lockdown? I thought, that's a question that's worth asking. And I realize it's going to make some people uncomfortable. He starts with a quote from journalist Emily Badger from the psychology of a citywide lockdown. And I believe this one refers to the lockdown of Boston uh, following the, the Boston Marathon bombing. But the author, journalist Emily Badger, says it takes a remarkable force to keep a million people or nearly a million people quietly indoors for an entire day. Home from work and school, from neighborhood errands and out of town travel. It takes a remarkable force to keep businesses closed and cars off the road to keep playgrounds empty and porches unused across a densely populated place 125 square miles in size. And this happened not because armed officers went door-to-door or imposed a curfew or threatened martial law. All around the region for 13 hours, people locked up their businesses and sheltered in place out of a kind of collective will. The force that kept them there wasn't external. There was virtually no active enforcement across the city of the governor's plea that people stay indoors. Rather, the pressure was an internal one expressed as concern or helpfulness in some cases, fear felt in thousands of individual homes. Now, John Whitehead says this is is a test. 
This is not a test of our commitment to basic hygiene or disaster preparedness or our ability to come together as a nation in times of crisis, although we're not doing so well on any of those fronts. He says, no, what's about to unfold over the next few weeks is a test to see how well we have assimilated the government's lessons in compliance, fear, and police state tactics. A test to see how quickly we'll march in lockstep with the government's dictates. No questions asked. And a test to see how little resistance we offer up to the government's power grab when it's made in the name of national security. Most critically of all, he says, this is a test to see whether the Constitution and our commitment to the principles enshrined in the Bill of Rights can survive a national crisis and true state of emergency. So here's what we know. Whatever the so-called threat to the nation, whether it's civil unrest or maybe global, I'm sorry, school shootings, alleged acts of terrorism or the threat of a global pandemic in the case of COVID-19, the government has a tendency to capitalize on the nation's heightened emotions, confusion and fear as a means of extending the reach of police, the police state. The coronavirus epidemic, which has brought China's Orwellian surveillance out of the shadows and caused Italy to declare a nationwide lockdown, threatens to bring the American police state out into the open on a scale we've not seen before. If and when a nationwide lockdown finally hits, if and when we are forced to shelter in place, if and when militarized police are patrolling the streets, if and when security checkpoints have been established, if and when the media's ability to broadcast the news has been curtailed by government censors, if and when public systems of communication, phone lines, internet, text messaging, etc. have been restricted, If and when those FEMA camps the government has been surreptitiously building finally get used as quarantine detention centers for American citizens. If and when military snatch and grab teams are deployed on local, state and federal levels as part of the activated continuity of government plans to isolate anyone suspected of being infected with COVID-19. And if and when martial law is enacted with little real outcry or resistance from the public, he says then we will truly understand the extent to which government has fully succeeded in recalibrating our general distaste for anything that smacks too overtly of tyranny. This is how it begins. Now, he says the coronavirus epidemic may very well be a legitimate health concern, but it's the government's response to it that worries him more in the long run. And he's not alone. Based on the government's track record and its long-anticipated plans for instituting martial law, using armed forces to solve domestic, political, and social problems in response to a future crisis, he says there's good reason to worry. This is not a government with a rosy view of the future. To the contrary, the government's vision of the future is particularly ominous if a Pentagon training video created by the Army for U.S. Special Operations Command is anything to go by. By the way, he has links in this article, and I'll have this linked in the show notes. Obtained by The Intercept through a Freedom of Information uh, Act request, the training video titled Megacities, Urban Future, The Emerging Complexity provides a chilling glimpse of what the government expects the world to look like in 2030, a world bedeviled by criminal networks, substandard infrastructure, religious and ethnic tensions, impoverishment, slums, open landfills, overburdened sewers, a growing mass of unemployed and an urban landscape in which the prosperous economic elite must be protected from the impoverishment of the have-nots. Add health contagions to the mix, and we've we've arrived there, 10 years ahead of schedule. Now, the training video is only five minutes long, but it says a lot about the government's mindset and the way it views the citizenry. Even more troubling, however, is what this military video doesn't say about the Constitution and the rights of the citizenry, which is nothing at all. 
In typical fashion, the government seems to consider the Constitution only when forced to do so. It complies with the dictates of the Constitution even less frequently. Indeed, the government's efforts to systematically lock down the nation and shift us into martial law have not been stymied one iota by the restraints imposed upon it by the Constitution. When it's not bulldozing its way through the Fourth Amendment, the government just sidesteps it with the help of the courts. So what should you expect if the government decides to declare a national state of emergency and institute a nationwide lockdown? More of the same of what we've been seeing in recent years. After all, like the proverbial boiling frogs, he says the government has been gradually acclimating us to the specter of a police state for years now. Militarized police, riot squads, camouflage gear, black uniforms, armored vehicles, mass arrests, pepper spray, tear gas, batons, strip searches, surveillance cameras, Kevlar vests, drones, lethal weapons, less than lethal weapons unleashed with deadly force. Rubber bullets, water cannons, stun grenades, arrests of journalists, crowd control tactics, intimidation tactics, brutality. That's how you prepare a populace to accept a police state willingly, even gratefully. He says you don't scare them by making dramatic changes. Rather, you acclimate them slowly to their prison walls. Persuade the citizenry that their prison walls are merely intended to keep them safe and danger out. Desensitize them to violence acclimate them to a military presence in their communities and persuade them that only a militarized government can alter the seemingly hopeless trajectory of the nation. To which John Whitehead says, it's happening already. The sight of police clad in body armor and gas masks, wielding semi-automatic rifles and escorting an armored vehicle through a crowded street, a scene likened to a military patrol through a hostile city, no longer causes alarm among the general populace. We've allowed ourselves to be acclimated to the occasional lockdown of government buildings, jade helm military drills in small towns so that special operations forces can get, quote, realistic military training in hostile territory and live active shooter drill training exercises carried out at schools in shopping malls and on public transit, which can and do fool law enforcement officials, students, teachers and bystanders into thinking it's a real crisis. He says, still, you can't say we weren't warned. Back in 2008, an Army War College report revealed that widespread civil violence inside the United States would force the defense establishment to reorient priorities in extremists to defend basic domestic order and human security. That 44-page report went on to warn that potential causes for such civil unrest could include another terrorist attack, unforeseen economic collapse, loss of functioning, political and legal order, purposeful domestic resistance or insurgency, pervasive public health emergencies, and catastrophic natural and human disasters. Now, there's much more to this article, but he raises a great point here. The continual undermining of the rules that protect civil liberties has far-reaching consequences on a populace that not only remains ignorant about their rights, but seems inclined to sacrifice their liberties for a phantom promise of safety. It doesn't take much for the American people to be terrorized into compliance by the government's latest and greatest scare tactic, even if it means being stripped of your constitutional rights at a moment's notice. He just says, remember, a police state does not come about overnight. Now, it may be we've already gone too far down this road, but don't let this latest crisis cause you to panic to such an extent that you relinquish your fundamental right to make decisions for yourself and your loved ones and willingly surrender what remains of your freedoms. Again, I'll have this linked in the show notes. Well worth your time. John Whitehead from the Rutherford Institute. This is Loving Liberty. Stick around. Hour 2 is on the way next. Next. 